0: Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the America Zentrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this 10-episode series, my guest and I will discuss a work of fiction set primarily in Chicago. For this episode, we will be discussing The Man with the Golden Arm by Nelson Algren, which was first published in 1949. And my guest today is Mark Blotner. Blotner has worked on independent video productions ranging from community-driven documentaries to the 1997 BBC documentary, A Walk on the Wild Side, as a researcher and fixer. He has extensive history in corporate interactive design and development for a variety of distribution channels, including mobile, web, and desktop digital media. He co-produced the 2015 documentary film, Nelson Algren, The End is Nothing, The Road is All, which is distributed by First Run Features, and which I highly recommend. Mark is currently working as an executive producer and director on the upcoming web series, A Progressive History of Chicago. And in his day job, he's a software engineer for a sports data company. Uh, The website that he designed and developed for the Nelson Algren film is is nelsonalgrentheroadisall.com. And I highly recommend you check that out because there's lots of of good stuff on it. Today, we're going to discuss The Man with the Golden Arm by Nelson Algren, 1949 novel. Mark, um, you've made a documentary film about Nelson Algren. And so my question is, um, you know, why Nelson Algren? What's so great about Nelson Algren to you?
1: Right. Okay. Why Algren? Well, here's my personal anecdote. When I first moved to the Wicker Park neighborhood, West Town, generally speaking, Chicago, I had a roommate who's a writer, and he turned me on to uh, Nelson Algren's writing. And when I started to read, The Neon Wilderness was the first book I read of Algren. And I, I, I think that's a good entry Point for anybody. Short stories, it's a collection of short stories, in particular, How the Devil Came Down Division Street. It's my favorite short story of any literature, certainly of Algren's. And when I read Algren's writing, the, the characters, the way he described the characters, it basically made the neighborhood come alive for me. It was like I, I would walk down the street and I would see a building. I, I actually could visualize these people and hear them speaking and smell the the food that was being cooked and the kind of the the tenement life that was there. And there were vestiges of it left when I first moved to to Chicago back in 1983. It's not so much the same now, but you could see and feel the history and understand what brought people to essentially the gutter and Mm. how they got to that point. And, And I think that's why Algren, I mean, Algren helps define essentially the human condition that is the key is that understanding people that may not be like yourself and uh really with it with a, a the keener eye and a sense of empathy that's that's, the, that's why all
0: that last mm-hmm. thing uh, people who aren't like yourselves is like it's interesting to me because that for me Olgren all of his work is always about people who aren't even really like him and are not like the people who usually read Novels, they tend to be quite articulate, badly educated people, very poor, like the poorest of poor people. They're often criminals. They're not necessarily nice people, and these are all elements of his fiction that, so to to you and to me, I guess are are really what makes it great. It, it opens your it opens your imagination to a, a a part of the world that you don't necessarily experience firsthand. And probably don't want to experience firsthand if we're honest with ourselves. But it's also what critics critics of Allgren really seem to despise about Allgren. That's there was something you know, he was accused one of one of the critics accused him of being the bard of Stumblebum. And was it the man with the
1: golden beef? Oh, golden beef. Man with the golden beef. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie Fiedler and uh And Pod horitz and Noran Prodoritz, correct. Yes. And But it's to me that these are
0: the – it's interesting to me what you said about the fact that this reading the De- How the Devil Came Down Division Street sort of opened up the very neighborhood you were living in in a different way. and makes you think about – makes you look at your own city right, in a different right. way. And that
1: empathy for those people that you walk past on the street. Right. It certainly helped me to understand at the time there was still a Polish underclass that lived in the Wicker Park area. You know, I, I would come home at night and there was a guy that I always find sleeping in my parking spot right in the gutter. And uh, he, he had lost an arm. I don't know how he'd lost the arm, but, he, you know, he had obviously been drinking all day and just decided that somehow he stumbled into the street. I mean, he easily could have been run over. And uh, I just, you know, I just wonder how, how did this happen to this person? How did he get yeah. here? This is the other thing is there's not many other writers that. Really have done that in, in, in yeah. history literature. There's, There's writers who know,
0: approach it, but don't quite go full the full commitment yeah. that Algren gives to these characters. And it's that, that question, like, how did this guy get here? Algren asks that question, but that's for him, that's like possibly the least interesting question or the only a preliminary question. Because then the question for Algren, it seems to me, and we'll get to this in the specifics of the novel as we go, like, is really like, how do how do they survive how does this guy survive here? What is what does it mean to live a life like this and and, uh, and and how is this life meaningful? I think Aldrin doesn't he doesn't disrespect those characters. He genuinely empathizes and he asks you to empathize with characters who you probably don't like and don't want to meet. So The Man with the Golden Arm is a novel about Frankie machine the a, a car dealer a war veteran who's come back from the second world war with injuries and a morphine addiction and and it follows a story of him trying to trying to get clean trying to break out of a loveless marriage um trying to do a lot of things and being unable to do that he's trapped in this and in, in, in a variety of things including being trapped on on division street he's trapped in that gutter really but it's always been interesting to me, reading and rereading this novel, as I have quite a few times now, that that although that's the plot of this of the novel, that's the title of the novel, um, it really is a novel about the whole neighborhood. And it, it really, I, more and more, and the more I think about it, the more I reread it, I really, and I think the first half of the novel is constructed this way in particular. It's it's a ensemble piece, and Algren spends a lot of time with every single character, right in this novel. And you get to know a lot about even really minor characters. One of the ones that stuck out to me in this reread that I did this week was uh, there's a character called umbrella man. Who's like the kind of idiot brother of one of the cops. And, and he shows up and plays, he plays in the, the nightly poker game and Frankie kind of keeps an eye on him and doesn't let him get ripped off. Cause everyone's trying to cheat this guy. Cause he's, cause he's a soft Mark. and, you end up learning quite a lot about him, even though he doesn't say a word in the novel. And he's kind of an important, he shows up at just important moments and he's, he's not there to be a metaphor and he's not there to be a symbol of anything. He's there because he lives in the neighborhood and he's part of the relationships of all these people. And that then Algren's great. One of the things that makes him great. And one of the things that I think excavates that empathy and, and that, Genuine belief in the humanity of these people who live desperately difficult and poor lives is is that he shows exactly how these people are all dependent on one another in different ways and how those dependencies get valued and and how they get broken because it's really when they get broken that people people right. uh, have their downfalls and 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 maybe this is a, a good place to pivot a little bit here is um, how the power structures of, a, of the city or the country, the political power structures, how they clamp people down because that's really what happens in The Man with the Golden Arm. The thing mm-hmm. that makes Frankie vulnerable is is that it's an election year.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm just kind of to pull back to the previous subject where um, the, the New Year's yeah. Eve party scene where uh, all the sub-characters there, but the way that Algren describes it almost from the, the you know the point of view of the gang, so to speak, is you know the bar gang. Everybody who mattered yeah. was there, right? And and then there were people who didn't matter that were there, and of course they're not brought up in the novel. And then there's people who didn't want to matter. And I thought, well, that's Algren. He's sitting in yeah. a corner, you know, observing these folks in their lives. He didn't, you know, he was just some background character you know he was you know they, they probably knew him as a writer to some degree or i think he might have been known to some degree than they were but but he didn't matter in yeah. that story and i think that's a very good scene because it shows them in the most positive yeah. light in that particular new Year's Eve party scene and um what he does so well is he it, it, with these these characters that have such tragic lives and i guess to put it bluntly the average American would write them off instantly mm-hmm. as losers and no one to care about it they're not even wasted any time thinking about it. and the fact that hey you know their lives matter too they're people they have their thing and and, and what's so amazing is Algren is able to bring that to light you know I mean there there's there's deep tragedy and I think almost every one of them and to bring this forward to the uh The power dynamic, Mm -hmm. absolutely. You've got – so Frankie Machine is the dealer for essentially, I guess, a small-time mobster.
0: Yeah. Who
1: is tied in with – Yeah, the native – yeah, Zero Shrizka. And the neighborhood politics with the the superintendent, the ward super. Yeah. They usually call him the super – the ward superintendent. So in Chicago, it's not quite the same these days, although there there are certainly elements of it. Where the ward politics were very it's very it's 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 all it's identical to organized crime it really is I mean it is and quite often it's one and the same so you have this hierarchy of whittled down to block by block you know the precinct captain you have somebody that watches over your neighborhood and somebody in an ideal situation you're supposed to be able to go to them if there's a problem with the you know the the trash pickup or, you know, a gang in the neighborhood that's threatening you. You go to the precinct captain, you tell them what's going on, maybe the Alderman will step in, bring some you know, a little bit more police, uh, you know, alert over there. But but really the typical thing in Chicago is they might be part of the whole yeah. gang structure, right? So, you know, you couldn't have you couldn't have prostitution, you couldn't have the, you know, the the types of crime that we have in Chicago without the involvement of the of these figures without the police being involved right uh former alderman we interviewed for the film leon dupree Mm -hmm. brought that up very well he leon dupree was uh an alderman that at one point in the uh, late 50s early 60s he was one of the only dissenting voices in a very um, democratic machine run city hall led by uh, old richard daly so yeah, so the power dynamic, it goes way back in Chicago and Auburn captures it very clearly. You have everything down to even even like Sparrow salt skin, Frankie's um, you know sidekick, so to speak. They have the, the, the power dynamics on the block and small petty thievery. Who's in charge of that? So nobody else would be dog thieving the neighborhood because that's Sparrow's job. Yeah, that's what he does. And uh, Frankie's the dealer. Nobody else is going to be in that slot. Nobody's going to be the card dealer. You know, Frankie's the man, yeah. and uh, works for for Shrivka. And of course, they're tied in with the with the local politics, and that's in the end, of course, that's yeah. what. And Nifty Louie and,
0: and Blind Pig are the drug dealers, and everyone knows that. And they stay in the bar across the street, out of the way of the Tug and mall, where Antec is the. Barkeeper and sells beer and whiskey and only beer and whiskey, and no one bothers the drug. De- the cops don't bother the drug dealer because they know who he is and he's tied into them as well. And then you have the the landlord, who as long as the doors are shut in the building won't give you grief. But if the, you know he wants everything kept behind closed doors. Then you have got all the people living their different lives in that in that tenement building. So Frankie and his wife, who's a, a invalid, um, Zosh. You've got Vi and her husband Stosh, who's, a, who's an old man who doesn't speak very much English. He's he's Polish and speaks in broken English. He's a, he's a kind of interesting character to me, partly for that reason. The way that Algren lends him a kind of articulateness of thought because he's a very undignified character. He's basically just kind of run around and literally then out the window by by the end of the novel, right? And you know, Solly's coming in when he's at work to sleep with his with his wife. Then out into the street and the, there's the, the two neighborhood cops and then there's the captain in the precinct who starts the novel who also features in one of those stories in The Neon Wilderness. The captain has bad dreams um, which gets reworked into a couple of different scenes in The Man with the Golden Arm but Captain Bednar is a very interesting figure because he sits there at the beginning of the novel and all of these habitual criminals are put up in front of him and he's booking them one by one and he's, he's kind of punished by by their vagary, i guess is a is a way of putting it and can't quite understand why and as the novel goes on you don't see a lot of him but at the end algren really kind of damns him and and the thing that bednar gets damned for is that he doesn't actually care about these people it's a really weird interesting moment that i noticed when i was when i was reading through it that he cries these crocodile tears that uh, let me see if i can find it so he's he's haunted by these these crimes and criminals that come up in front of him then in the midst of in the middle of the novel he has to book in a a defrocked priest who says to him you still preach pretty good when it comes to cashing phony checks what were you defrocked for because i believe we are all members of one another that stopped the captain cold he studied the wreck as if suddenly so uncertain of himself that he was afraid to ask what he had meant by that i don't get it he acknowledged at last and passed on with greater confidence to a little heroine head batting his eyes and coughing the little dry addicts cough politely into his palm he gets haunted by that line we are all members of one another and it's the defrocked preach preacher a priest is saying this this is a you know Allgren's, um, theology i suppose we might call it is that that the church isn't going to provide your morality the cop isn't going to provide your morality the neighborhood has its kind of morality that has to be found in the ways in which these people we are all members of one another and the the captain doesn't get that everyone else in the novel gets that and they know when they're betraying it so solly frankie so solly sells out frankie twice in this novel and that's one of the real heartbreakers it's like a lot of the novel gets focused on the on the loveless marriage between Frankie and his wife, Zosh, and then the love between him and Molly, the girl who hustles drinks at the bar across the street, and is a stripper and a prostitute and everything. And that's the love that's going to save him, but it can't. But actually, I think the, the platonic love between him and Solly, this, this um, thief, and the fact that they rely on one another, and then when one of them sells the other out is when it really goes wrong. It's really, it's very heartbreaking Cause it ruins them both and they both know it yeah. and they both acknowledge it to themselves and are defenseless against it. But the, with the captain to come back to my point, what the captain doesn't understand at the end, he's described as, as crying crocodile tears for these people because he doesn't see himself as a member of them. He sees himself behind that mirror, behind that microphone in the station as someone apart right. from it, even though he's every bit a member of the, of the neighborhood is, as, as
1: they are. Right, so so right, so Bednar would be what I guess what in the in the book and the terms of the time he was one of the squares. Yeah, yeah. right. So so Bednar is kind of on the I guess the front line, so to speak, and and they have the, the requisite lineup scene, which of course Algren uses the the device in in several of his works, and it, it's a great device because it, you basically get this kind of cross section of you know small time thievery. And the idea that each one of the people that's presented in the lineup has the spotlight on them one at a time, mm-hmm. and each of them has is guilty of something, right? And the point, I think, that needs to be made is that, of course, we're all guilty of something. And they, of course, have to face it uh, in front of an audience. There's not only Bednar, but there's also this, this in, in the scene in, in Golden Arm, there's, there's this background of, Spectators, yeah. Uh, of course, in, back in the day, you could go in and actually, uh, and Alderman did this. You could go in and watch the lineups. Yeah, I don't think you he you didn't, he didn't even need to be part of the a crime. It, it was an open. Um, I think there was some way you could actually get in to the station. And, at and-
0: one time, you had to have a ticket that said you were a victim of a crime, and I think he he talks about this somewhere where he he got robbed at some point, and he <laughs> he kept the ticket so he could keep mm-hmm. going back as though he was going to like identify the the assailant, or something, but he just used it so he could go and and use it as a spectator sport. I suppose that's a bit
1: unkind to him. He's yes, yeah. well, he's a writer, so yeah. he's, he's, he's yeah. using it's it for a purpose. So, but the but the point there, yeah. So the point in, in the book in that scene is that he describes them laughing in a very non human, non feeling yeah. way, a yeah. very distant, disconnected way. So that essentially, it's, it's it's the idea of laughing at other, laughing at the. Um, misfortunes of these folks and there's no he mentions there's it's not real laughter yeah none of these people having real laughter bednar is not having real feelings he's disconnected bednar's from the neighborhood so he knows these and he knows these people he knows these thieves probably these small-time criminals he knows them better than probably anybody else because yeah. he sees them all the time and uh yeah the whole the whole thing i think it, it really hits on the question of okay, what is he doing with his life? It's an existential question. What do you, are, are you actually are you actually doing something to help these people? What's the point of policing? Mm-hmm. Allgren doesn't get into all those details, but it's, it's kind of well. One of the things I think is really
0: impressive about Allgren in in this novel more than his others, I think, is that in this novel, all of that that question is direct. Like, what is the point of these? Of this policing what is the point of this official society what is the point of this culture is is always there but it's so much at the edge of the novel that that you it's not the focus the focus is these people who are living the consequences of those things and and it just gets a passing you know the, so the novel starts with bednar as we've been talking about you get some mentions of the the ward super and the election year that's coming so frankie Pretty early on in the novel, um, kills his drug dealer who's basically taunting him. There's a bit more to it than that, but no one really cares until it starts becoming an election liability, and the and the ward supervisor needs needs to clean it up so he can get reelected, and so Frankie becomes a political consequence, and it's just in there, it's just as part of the fabric. It it starts to drive the plot a bit more towards the end, but the way in which that it becomes suffocating, all those power structures become suffocating to these people who actually do care about one another, who fight with each other and are mean to each other. But ultimately, you see that all those, you know, back to your New Year's Eve party, everyone who mattered was there. They actually matter to each other. Bednar's not, not at the New Year's Eve party because he doesn't matter. All right he doesn't recognize them as a me- as members of him and himself as members of of them like that like that priest does and the way that those balances go so delicately through this novel is a, it's a it's an astonishing i think from my point of view it's an astonishing feat of writing to have created these characters to have set their relationships so delicately together in such a complicated
1: and meaningful way yeah, the, the way that the the story develops is interesting to me. Just been rereading it. Uh, I mean, it, it's a slow moving novel at yeah. first, and it's rich in character and in exposition with the scenery, and it, it's absolutely. It, it, in rereading, I thought this is absolutely genius. Is the way that the way that this develops. I mean, the actual plot moves fairly quickly once it actually moves, but that's not really the point necessarily. It's the point is, is quite off. It's the impression yeah. of the, of the characters, what, what position they're in, in life, getting back to the existentialist aspect, which he, he also dealt in with the novel, uh, never come morning where these folks are in a, essentially a, a trap, you know, they're, they're trapped in poverty and their options are few. Uh, at least their foreseeable options as, as a, third party observe as a reader you're thinking well why can't they get out of this why don't they just leave the neighborhood why doesn't Frankie get away from the situation why does he just leave his wife yeah and those are easy solutions for anybody else to say of course but not so easy for the character themselves
0: so it's explicitly dealt with a few times like um, Vi in particular who wants to leave her husband but relies on his pension um, and she keeps trying to save up money to divorce him. But as soon as she saves up a bit, then she spends it. And and she's just stuck in this, in this impoverished cycle. And by the end of the novel, she's, she's moved in with the, um with the landlord as her solution. So she like, literally she tries to leave. She can't leave. She ends up consolidating with the one guy who's definitely not going anywhere. Cause he owns the building. Right. So you mentioned never come morning. And there's a lot of parallels between the novels they're set in the same neighborhood as part of it but you know Frankie dream his one dream is becoming a drummer and he's apparently a good drummer it's kind of hard to tell but he he does he he actually can drum it's not just some made up thing in his mind but like in in never come morning Bruno Bicek wants to leave the neighborhood by becoming a boxer and he's a bo- he's a good boxer and a good baseball player but like he dreams it without really focusing on Creating it, and also it doesn't have the opportunity or the money to put himself
1: in a position to create it. Right, and and in the long run, those are fairly um, you know high risk. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like everybody's going to be all right. Uh, Gene Krupa, Gene Krupa, course. yeah, so, or, or Rocky yeah. Marciano, or whatever right yeah. right so there's no there's no real there's no other you know practical it's either you know they haven't been to the career guidance or, counselor or at school <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah so i mean even like yeah they think auger touches on it a little bit with frankie's background i, I thought it was interesting so Sophie has, you know, good Polish education where she she at least got through like, I think, ninth grade. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's it. Never graduated high school, but it's a good Polish education. Yeah. And um, I think Frankie didn't even get that far. He's like sixth grade education or something. Something like that. Foster parents, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Sophie had a mother and a father. And a, it seems like she had kind of a, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a lower working class, you know. Yeah home that you came from it which it was much nicer than frankie's background yeah and um once again in the kind of hierarchy of the neighborhood you know frankie's one of the, with, with, the generalized term is punk yeah. he, he's, he's a punk from the neighborhood. he's basically a he's going to be trouble right i mean he doesn't have a a, a skill set to speak of came went into the service and um i guess he got a purple heart that's something that that kind of comes out of that so he has some sense of, I guess, commitment, loyalty, and bravery, but courage, but um, never comes out of that with any skill set, but but ends up being hooked on morphine, mm-hmm. and and that, that's the classic, the, the classic thing. I guess we're kind of we're looking at it too, is that it's more of the high level angle. Is that here you have a, a post war American novel where the the hero, quote unquote, is. Uh, He's a he's a war veteran who comes back a junkie. Yeah, I mean, is so anti-hero and so really anti-American. That's that's what I think one of the things that makes the, the novel so great. Yeah,
0: it's worth pointing out that this is not, not something that anyone had really written about in this way before
1: Allgren. Right, and it won the National Book Award yeah. in 1949, which was amazing in and of itself. Because also you, you had in America that just before McCarthyism it seemed was willing to look at itself and its social problems and really self-introspect to the point where we haven't even got, maybe in the sixties we had this a bit, but certainly not today. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're back to a different America. So that fact uh, was, was always intriguing to me was, you know, the, the particular angle. And there certainly wasn't any other point of view like that in American literature at the time. Later on, you had the beats a bit different, but, um, but similar generation similar, similar
0: generation to Frankie machine which is kind of interesting cuz a lot of those guys came back from the yeah. from the war not necessarily they didn't come back as junkies necessarily but but they did come back damaged by you know like, i think of damaged by war experience is what i was going to say there um and i was th- I, I sometimes think when i'm reading this novel about like hell's angels who are who are also guys who came back from the second world war addicted to drugs that they were given to you know, they're all speed freaks because they're feeding them speed so they could keep keep fighting and, it, right, and the damage right. that it causes causes those soldiers and it, which is not again not something that was widely written about in those terms and in terms of Algren's
1: taking them on I, I think one thing that we we should hit on is the theme of guilt oh I mean, yeah I was, a, I was just strong... about to say that word yeah okay so so the theme of guilt so you have there's several layers of this and angles but so you have the guilt which Augren describes so well actually I wanted to read this the great secret and special American guilt of owning nothing nothing at all in the one land where ownership and virtue are one guilt that lay crouched behind every billboard which gave each man his commandments for each man here had failed the billboards all down the line no Ford in this one's future nor ever any place all his own, had failed before the radio commercials by the streetcar plugs and by the standards of every self-respecting magazine. That's so good. That's so classic. Auburn. And he, he, of course, goes back to those themes in, in his essays, Chicago, make, and American, of course, Nonconformity, mm-hmm. which didn't get published until Dan Simon pulled it out of the archives and published it, I think, in 94, which is a, a great kind of Critique on uh, on America of, of the fifties, but also holds true today, quite clearly. It's it's kind of Aldrin's as for says, as Aldrin's State of the Union, yeah, and uh, certainly holds true today. But so that so that so there's the guilt of really not being middle class American, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I, it, that is something that's that's a real thing. I mean, through propaganda, especially commercials, as he mentions, uh, in, in the billboards, so to speak, in the radio ads. But with us today, yeah, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a home, if you don't own a home in America, if you don't have a car, you don't have this and that, then you're nobody, right? You, you, what would you be doing? What kind of American are you? So the guilt of not keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, not keeping up with what you're supposed to do in terms of a consumer. One of the special, unique components of the novel is that there's the kind of societal view and then there's also um you know there's the environmental influence on the characters especially frankie and and then there's the the tragedies of that are their own yeah. game, their own responsibility the guilt essentially of not living up to your higher self not even coming close you know the the guilt of not truly really trying to kick the drug habit or not taking care of yourself to the point of you know allowing this other guilt over his, his yeah. wife okay so sophie they they had a car accident frankie was drunk driving runs into a a, a light pole that's a whole great scene by the way and um so they but that, can i just interrupt accident, you for a second because that scene that scene
0: is great because okay. um he he um he smashes the car into the light pole and then immediately after it there's these there's this great moment where these he decides he needs a stick of gum to cover his breath and he, and these two girls hustle him. Right. These two little ten year old girls hustle him for a so he said, I'll give I'll give you a nickel if, if you give me a stick of gum and they give him this old unwrapped linty piece of gum that they hustle a dime out of him for. It's really like it's all all the like the comedy is always so interwoven and such a part of the texture. Sorry, I just had to like footnote that
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and then yeah, the two two young girls are chewing like uh, he describes them as calves yeah. chewing. on their It's cup. juicy fruit. It's and hard it, to it, get it, these it, days. They tell him. <laughs> right, 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 and then, and they warn it with so good. They're so street smart. You got these, you know, these young innocent girls, and oh, don't worry, Mister. Uh, the, the, the the cop is. I, I I can't remember the exact quote, but the cop is already stewed. Yeah. You don't, and you have to have a wallet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like so they. They know, yeah, they know the rules of the game, and they're like eight, nine years old. So, the guilt of not living up to your 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 better self, or not, and and with with Sophie, she's uses the um the dynamics. Their relationship is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of power play that happens between in a in a couple. I think Aubrey describes it fairly well, where. Frankie never really fell for Zosh like she wanted. Yeah. She wanted the man to really be in love with her like she was in love with him. And he basically just kind of, you know, it seemed like it was, a, it was the easiest thing for him to be with her. She was a very dominant yeah. personality. And then when she loses control, she brings that control back after the accident by essentially faking her, her disability and, and making Frankie feel guilty for the accident every day of his life. So the idea that the character has this vulnerability, right? And she knew, she knows that he has a, a a vulnerability to, to guilt. And she's taking total advantage of it. That's one of the things as a reader, you're thinking, you know, it, it, it is in some point, in some ways it is very, it's uncomfortable reading some of the, you, you feel tortured in some ways, but what what's so great about Aldrin, it's almost like, okay, sit down have a drink at the bar with me while I yeah. tell this story and we unravel this tragedy. <laughs> I mean, the thing with Sophie is really interesting because there's
0: there's a like th- maybe three or so um fairly long passages that focus on her. So you, you talked earlier about the how slowly the novel accumulates over the first part in particular that there's not a lot of plot happening and it really does just it just sort of shifts from character to character in quite smooth ways. One of them comes in and then it lingers on them and in fact i'm just gonna there's a there's a um critic called george bluestone who in his essay about algren says that these digressions are the point of algren that that the lingering on these characters and giving them their due is the point which ties back into what we were saying earlier um about the the um, empathy and, and so on. And we are members of each other, but with Sophie, it's really interesting because in each of these long passages of her looking out the window and thinking about how lousy her life is, she always um, starts to veer towards reflecting in a kind of honest way on how she's put herself in this situation. Cause she has put herself in this situation. She's faking her injuries. And as soon as she gets close to it, she, 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 pivots away and starts blaming other people for not helping her. You know, oh, Vi didn't even come by to help me today. Or Vi came by later or didn't stay as long as she should have. and Or Frankie's no good. He's doing, you know, he put me here. And it's, it's. she wants to be honest with herself. And then the truth starts to look a bit too unkind to her. And she, she pushes herself away from it. And the reason I'm, or well, one of the reasons I'm lingering on this and I find interesting is that it's also a parallel to never come morning. And never come morning. She's always talking about how people are cheating her and right. never come morning. The, the guy, the, um, barber who kind of runs the, the hoodlums gang out the back of his barbershop, Boniface. He's always talking about how people are cheating him. And he's a very, he's he's an awful, he's one of the, I think he's possibly Algren's nastiest character. I think he's even nastier than blind pig and nifty Louie and, and, oh, yeah. and Golden Arm. And, and he yeah. is, yeah, he yeah, deals right. himself fake hands imaginary hands of cards and then gets mad when the when the fake imaginary characters are cheating him <laughs> from the fake thing that he's doing and he's so <laughs> twisted up by his own sense of paranoia but he's similar he doesn't he has this obsession with being cheated and doesn't face truthfully who he is and how he has operated himself in this in a it's, it has different consequences and different textures to it than Sophie, but it's interesting that Algren focuses on these secondary characters with this particular thematic idea and how, how carefully he shows them denying their their own character. Because other characters in Algren right. have similar problems, they, and some of them are more honest about who they are and and, and others aren't.
1: Right. Studs Terkel mentioned this when we interviewed him uh for a documentary, that quite often it's what's not said. Yeah. And that's what's uh, interesting in, in in how this story unfolds. It's not really plot-driven, it's character-driven. And it's how the character, what the, uh, Sophie, for instance, always focusing. I mean, it seems like, you know, there's this nostalgic love of the past. And you realize, you know, you, you start to, as you get to know the character more, you realize... Well, she really did have a nice yeah. life. She was one of the hot gals in the neighborhood, you know, and, and Frankie and her were quite the couple. They were a handsome couple and very they did exciting and fun things. And as it, you know, what happens, at, you know, the contemporary, you know, time that everything has fallen apart, and she's bitter and blames other uh, everybody else around her. And I guess the thing that's interesting too is that okay, how many how many writers are going to concentrate on? That person as a character, and the fact of the matter is, how many of people in our own lives do we know that are like that? And I, <laughs> I have to say, there's quite a few. I mean, it's very common to have sophies mm-hmm. and male or female to pay attention to that perspective in life, and you realize, oh, oh yeah, yeah, this this is this has happened to a lot of people, and the way he describes her time alone. She's trapped in the room uh in her wheelchair. It it's certainly suggested that she she can get up and walk around, but I guess in the long run you don't know how much ability she really does have. Part of it is a mental mm-hmm. thing. But just that there's the beauty in, in the tragedy. I mean the beauty in, in the loneliness and how he describes the the lighting and the cityscape. And he really captures that neighborhood so well. I mean maybe just, that's um absolutely spot on. Maybe out. that's
0: something we could just turn to as a, as a way of drawing up our, our conversation a bit, is um, the descriptions of the neighborhood. I mean, this, this novel barely leaves Division Street. It does a little bit, but not very much. And the descriptions of the city mostly, I think, manifest themselves in the Arc lights and the L. These these two images just recur right. and recur right. and recur, and have a really interesting effect. It creates a, I think the lights in particular. He's always talking about the the edges of the arc, you know, the lights thrown by the arc lights, and and it gives it a kind of. I'm I'm resisting saying melancholy because it is melancholic, but it's not just melancholy. And the L becomes a real. It creates claustrophobia. It's like the train is is ba- like a barrier to them rather than a, something that takes them somewhere. it's always rushing past right that's it good point. flutters like Molly's apartment who we haven't even talked much about Molly, but Frankie goes to visit her in her apartment downstairs and it's so close to the to the train tracks that when the train is half a mile away, the curtains start to flutter, and this image of the fluttering curtains is becomes a kind of comfort to him. And becomes then a kind of nostalgic thing quite quickly when he's not going to be able to go back to that apartment. But the train is always, the train is always coming past, and it's always circumscribing them. I think is maybe the word for it. The shadows of the tracks, the trains themselves.
1: Right. In, in Never Come Morning, he describes Bruno Bychek as a young boy growing up underneath the train tracks, yeah. as others would have grown up underneath trees. Yeah. So this industrial world, and this is something too. I think well. Um, you know, in the long run, that's probably what, you know, that's one of the th- aspects about Balgrin's writing and any of the um, people of his time period that, you know, describing this urban landscape, which was, you know, fairly, by today's standards, it was fairly mm-hmm. new, right? I mean, maybe 20, 30 years in, maybe 40 years in with the um, cars, the traffic, trolley cars, also, of course, the automobiles, and then the, certainly, the noise of the l i mean it, it, anybody who's lived in a city with a train mm-hmm. like that you you know that it's it's such an ongoing presence in your life, but just think about the fact that part of your life i mean you you're living your your life in this city where you're so used to having this immense presence with with the noise and the the pollution and and the and just the the, the reverberation it's a part of nature yeah. in a sense yeah. of, the, of the city and Algren does. And in, in the lighting, he does that in all yeah. his writing. He's he's so, uh, uh, to the, especially the, um, I guess he kind of compares and contrast that he, 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 quite a bit. He uses the, uh, the street yeah. lights and the neon lights, the artificial, the man made lights are, you know, the, the industrial lighting as opposed to, you know, what would have been historically, you know, any writer's, um, description would be of course yeah. nature well and, in fact and, he talks about the moon falls on nature but, and the moon yeah.
0: doesn't move and and then so sophie gets fixated on the moon and if the moon would just move and but it doesn't move it's stationary and then and then i think at another point it does move and she wants it to be still like she you know i guess what i'm trying to say is like it's like a paper, yeah, moon. paper moon yeah <laughs> you know nature isn't really doesn't have a place here the cities replace it. It occurred to me while you were it, right. It's
1: first it's it's yeah, and it off. occurred
0: to me while you were talking about that that in most of the other novels or a lot of other novels around this time or before this time, um, Chicago novels. I'm thinking of things like Native Son or The Jungle, Sister Carrie, and even Studs Lonigan. Like the the characters live in a particular neighborhood, but they always, there's always some point in the novel where they go to the rich part of town. So in native son, I mean, he gets employed by the, by the rich people in In the jungle. There's a scene where Jurgis goes to the rich guys. Um, the son sort of takes him home with him. He's in his millionaire's mansion uh, on the North side. And, Studs Lonigan, they sometimes you – know, they go down to town and they walk through richer neighborhoods to make fun of the rich people and stuff. <laughs> in Allgren, they they don't even get they, – they don't even see that world. Their world is still just this street and just these lights in their shadows and just these – Yeah, just yeah, that block. It's one block of Division Street where everybody
1: matters. Right. That, that, that's a good point. And even to some, to some degree, that's still an, an issue – in certain Chicago neighborhoods where young people don't even really get out, yeah. you know, beyond their, their neighborhood and explore, for instance, the art yeah. museum or a library you know, downtown or something like that. But uh, yeah, so there's, there's there's that claustrophobic feeling of entrapment, not only in the neighborhood, but of course, the metaphorical entrapment of the, you know, the social hierarchy of the neighborhood. I think for Algren and other writers of the time period, I think visual artists. I think it would be uh, Edward mm-hmm. Hopper. I think was a big influence on them, and also there was the advent of you know photography as art, and some of the photographers that worked in the um, you know part of the WPA projects, yeah. and, uh, There was a photographer that was very similar, and a few of them were, were doing similar work to Hopper, where they would show the the beauty in the urban landscape, and uh, you know how, how natural sunlight falls on these, you know, industrial objects mm-hmm. and in our tenement dwellings and whatnot. And Algren is all about this. Of course, it, it, there's, of course the, what we consider the um, standard beauties of the city, but it's, it's the alleys, of course, yeah. that you, you know, you have to love as well. And there's the beauty in, in, in the ugliness, so to speak, the beauty and the tragedy, the beauty, not only in the visual, but also of course, in the, in the stories of people's lives. So yeah, the, there's, a, I guess, a visual kind of tandem there, visual connection between the the lives of the people and their stories and the environment that they live in. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That might be a good place to leave our conversation. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about The Man with the Golden Arm, Mark
1: Blutner. Thanks for having me, Doug. Total pleasure.
0: just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum,
1: which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.